0: Psalm 25, we're going to read the entire thing and I'm going to pray and then we will uh, jump into the stage. 22 verses, uh, you're going to laugh at this Barry, this, this, I'm, I'm not just saying, this really is one of my favorite Psalms, I really do, I'm not, I'm not just saying, I know I say that a lot, but this really is one of my favorite Psalms, I love Psalm uh, 25, really is, I, I'm really, y'all, y'all leave me alone, I love this Psalm, all right. Psalm 25, who wrote it? What's it say there? David David wrote it. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. You're wondering how to pray for yourself? That's a good way to pray for yourself right there. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love. That's Kessid, Miss Nancy. Kessed, the, the, the steadfast love of the Lord, faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him. Will he instruct in the way that he should choose? His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble And forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to hit the pause button on the busyness of life and to take a deep breath, and to gather around your word. And I pray, Lord, that by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you would give us greater understanding of this psalm, greater appreciation of this psalm, and, Lord, a a practical application from this psalm. God, I pray that these words would connect directly with our lives, and... Affect the way that we live, and we will thank you and praise you for that grace. Meet with us tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kendall easily sums up the theme of the Psalms in one sentence. He writes God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving, and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And John Piper, speaking of the, the fact that these Psalms are actually Hebrew hymns, writes, The Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exists because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. The fact that we have the book of Psalms is a testimony that God thinks that emotions are important because these Psalms connect with us at that level. And we get to Psalm 25, and we find in this psalm some help for the journey. Some help for the journey. Now, a couple of uh, introductory thoughts before we jump into digging into this psalm. But first of all, uh, this psalm is an acrostic. That means that the different verses start with, uh, different letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It begins with Aleph and it works its way subsequently through the the Hebrew alphabet. It's just a poetic device, and you can't see it in your English translations. But if you're reading this in the the Hebrew, you'd see the Aleph Bet Gimel Dalet, Hay Vav Zayin. You'd see the Hebrew letters. Starting verses as a way to organize uh, the thoughts of the writer. It's just a poetic device. It'd be like us writing a poem and the first stanza starts with an A and the second stanza starts with a B and the third stanza starts with a C. It's just a, a way to organize thoughts and it's beautifully put together. This is the third acrostic by the way that we've seen in the Psalms. If you'll remember way back in Psalm, and I know you do, Psalm 9 and 10, uh, those two psalms were Hebrew acrostics, and they actually were, they went together because they were one big Hebrew acrostic. Uh, but here's uh, what I, I notice from Psalm 25. You notice that there is journeying language used here. For example, the word way is used four times. Look what it says there in verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Uh, look in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. So there's the idea of the way, the, 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 the direction you ought to be going in your life. That's what the word way means. Uh, but then we see the word uh, paths. Look what it says there in verse, uh, uh, verse uh, 10. Uh, He leads, uh, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast, love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Then back up to verse 4, make me know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. So there's way language and path language. This uh, speaks of a a journey. It speaks of progress in a certain direction. God calls us to be on the right path, to go the right way. Way. And it's interesting to note that throughout the Bible, the Christian life is compared to moving forward. It's compared to a journey. Now, our journey begins when we meet Christ. At the moment of conversion, when we are born again, our spiritual journey, our walk with God begins. And it will continue on in this life until God brings us Uh, home. And so we are on a journey from conversion to heaven. We are all on a journey and God has a a path, a way laid out for us, a direction he wants us to go on this um, journey. Uh, By the way, quick spoiler alert. This is one of the reasons I love the book Pilgrim's Progress by uh, the Baptist John Bunyan. And uh, just a little bit of insider information in October, we're going to begin a pastor's book club, and we're going to go through Pilgrim's Progress together. We'll make the book available to you. I think we already have some in. And uh, we're going to make some assignments. You read a chapter, and and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do some, some video podcasts. Josh and I are going to get together and... Uh, talk through different chapters and kind of highlight some different things and hopefully uh, make the book uh, the, the book Pilgrim's Progress a little more accessible to you, understanding what's happening there in that piece of literature, because it's a beautiful picture of a journey uh, on your way to heaven. And that's the same thing here in Psalm 25. Now look what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, this psalm pictures life as a difficult journey, listen, that we can't successfully make by ourselves. That's the point of this psalm. Life is a difficult journey that we can't successfully make by ourselves. We need some help on our Christian journey. And just to reinforce the point that this journey is not easy, let me show you a couple things that David is dealing with here in this psalm. First of all, verse 2, he says... Uh, he's surrounded by enemies. He says there in verse two, "Let not my enemies exult over me." Verse nineteen, he mentions that his enemies hate him. Look what it says in verse nineteen: "Consider how many are my foes, with what violent hatred they hate me." Verse fifteen, it says they, his enemies, lay traps for him. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net, the traps that his enemies have laid for him. And his enemies wanted him to fail. Verse 2, verse 3, look in verse 20. He says, Oh, guard my soul, deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My my enemies want me to fail. They want me to fall flat on my face. And so David felt this weight of being surrounded by enemies as he was trying to make his way uh, in his spiritual journey. And so David comes to the Lord and says, I need some help. I mean, life is full of pitfalls, life is full of traps, life is full of hardships, life is full of opposition, and if I'm going to go on the right path and go the right direction and be on the way, I need your help. That's what Psalm 25 is about. It's about asking God for help in the journey. And so in this psalm, David exemplifies four things I think are worthy of our emulation. Four, Four characteristics here that we see surface in David's life. First of all, in this psalm, David exemplifies a trusting soul. A trusting soul. So there in verse 1, he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And I told you last week, this idea of lifting up the soul is a metaphor for trusting God. That's what it is. Because in the psalm before this, verse 24, verse 4, he says... uh, That the one who worships the Lord with a pure heart does not lift up his soul uh, to what is false. And so the idea there is is a a true worshiper is not lifting up their soul or trusting in a false god. A true worshiper is trusting in the real God. And so lifting up the soul is a metaphor for trusting God, believing in God, uh, placing their faith in God. And he says there, Uh, In you, God, I lift up my soul. Oh, Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, oh, my God, in you I trust. Those are parallel statements that mean the same thing. And he trusted God in two different ways here. First of all, he trusted God because of what God remembers. He trusted God for what God remembers. Look what it says in verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. So he's saying, Lord... You are not a God who forgets how to be merciful. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad that we don't serve a capricious God that just changes with every whim? Aren't you glad that when God pours out love and mercy and grace, He is consistent and He'll never cease to be loving and merciful and gracious? He doesn't just stop. The spout doesn't turn off. He is a God who remembers his mercy and remembers his grace for us. And so he, he, he's saying, God, I'm, I'm grateful that you remember your mercy toward me. He even says in verse 7, according to your steadfast love, remember me. God, remember me. Keep me in mind. And God always does. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. So he trusted God because of what God remembers. But here's the second thing, and this is neat. He trusted God because of what God doesn't remember. There are some things God does remember, and there are some things God uh, does not remember. Look what it says there in verse 7. He says, verse 6, remember your mercy. Verse 7, he says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. (laughs) In other words, God, I want you to remember your mercy, but please, please don't hold my past sins to my account. Remember them no more. And guess what? God doesn't. And it's not because God can't. God knows everything. God is omniscient. It's because God chooses not to remember your sins. God chooses not to hold your past against you if they've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says over in Micah that God takes our sins, listen to this, and he puts them into a sea of forgetfulness. Isn't that cool? He takes your sins to the bottom of the sea. And I've heard one preacher say it like this. He puts them in the sea of forgetfulness. He puts up a no fishing sign. They're down at the bottom of the sea. They'll always be down at the bottom of the sea. And so uh, David's grateful here. God, I'm, I'm grateful that you remember your mercy. I'm grateful that you remember your love. And I'm grateful that you do not remember my sin. He's saying, I can trust you, God, because of what you remember and what you do not remember. Uh, Harry Ironside, in his commentary on the Psalms, tells the story of visiting a very old Christian man. He said the man was in his 90s and he lived a very godly life. However, in his last days, he sent for Harry Ironside, who was a pastor, and he expressed this to him Everything seems so dark. This older Christian gentleman, Faith with the Lord says, everything seems so dark. And Pastor Ironside says, well, whatever do you mean? You've known the Lord for nearly 70 years. You've lived for him for a long, long time. You've helped others. Whatever do you mean dark? The man replied, in my illness, since I've been lying here so weak, my memory keeps bringing up the sins of my youth, and I cannot get them out of my mind. They keep crowding in upon me, and I cannot help thinking of them. They make me feel miserable and wretched. You ever been there? You ever, you ever can't get your past sins off your mind? You can't get past your past, and they're weighing you down, and there's guilt and shame. And you say, well, I've come to Jesus. I've, I've, I've trusted in his sacrificial death and his, his bodily resurrection. I know he died for my sins. I know that his shed blood washed away my sins, but I, I can't get these past sins off my mind and heart. And Ironside, the pastor, turned to Psalm 25. And he read to him, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. After he read those words, he said, When you came to God 70 years ago, you confessed your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happened then? The old man couldn't remember, and Ironside said, Don't you remember that when you confessed your sins, God said, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more? If God, listen to this, if God has forgotten them, why should you think about them? If God has forgotten them, why should you think about them? And here's what the man said. He relaxed and said, I'm an old fool remembering what God has forgotten. I'm an old fool remembering what God has forgotten. It is never Spiritually advantageous to hold on to things and to bear up under sin and guilt from your past when God has forgotten it. God has forgiven it in His Son Jesus Christ, and He's washed it away, and He's buried your sin and my sin in a sea of forgetfulness. Aren't you glad if you're holding on? To, if you're a Christian. If you're born again, if you're, if you're converted, and you're holding on to past sin, you're doing something with your sin that God is not doing with your sin because he remembers it no more. And so David exemplifies a trusting soul. On this journey, on this path that I'm taking, uh, I, I, I trust you, God. I trust you because you'll never leave me nor forsake me, and you will remember my sin no more. Secondly, David exemplifies a teachable mind a teachable mind. Look in verse 4. If you're looking at your blanks there, notice David's desire. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So notice David's desire here, this bubbling up in his prayer. Make me to know. Teach me. Lead me. He wants God's ongoing activity in his life. God, I want you to do something in me. I want you to change me as you teach me. So that's David's desire, that God continues his working in his life, changing him, teaching him, instructing him, molding him, and making him in who he needed to be. And you say, well, how does God God do this? How does God teach you? How does God lead you? Well, notice not only David's desire, notice the curriculum that David knows God uses. Look what it says there in verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Notice ways and paths. And then in verse 5, he gives a little bit more information. Lead me in your, what's that word there? Truth. Truth and teach me. And so he's speaking here of God's truth. If you know God's truth, you know God's way. If you know God's truth, you know the the path you ought to be on, and you know the path you ought not to be on if you know God's truth. So let me say it like this. Our curriculum for learning the ways of God, the acts of God, the truth of God, the right path for our lives is the Word of God rightly understood by the Spirit of God. The Word of God rightly understood by the Spirit of God. That's why you hear me say all the time that you and I need to be engaged in consistent engagement with the Word of God. We need to be reading the Word of God, saturated with Scripture, because as we read the Word of God, God is using His Word applied to our lives by His Spirit to to teach us, to lead us, to get us on the right path, and to keep us off of the wrong path. Path. So David's desire is, teach me. David's curriculum, the word of God. And by the way, we have something that David didn't have. We have the completed canon of scripture. We have Genesis through Revelation, the, the entire counsel of God to man that we get to read and study and learn from and meditate on and memorize and talk about and teach and learn. We have the Word of God. What a, what a remarkable gift God has given us. But but there's something you need to, to notice here about David. Notice David's understanding of the kind of person God teaches. This is critical. Look what it says there in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Sinners like me, sinners like you. As I said last week in my sermon, we're all all spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table, but God is gracious. He instructs sinners in the way. But look in verse 9. It says, he leads the humble. Everyone say, humble. humble. He leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. So here's what that means. That means if you're going to learn the ways of God, if you're going to learn the paths that God wants you to be on, if you're going to learn from God himself, you've got to be teachable. You've got to be humble enough to say, God... I've got some things to learn. I'm a work in process. I'm on a journey. I'm not home yet. This world's not my home. I'm just passing through. And on this journey, I need you to teach me. I need you to instruct me. I need you to give me the information that will keep me on the right path. God teaches the humble. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's easy. It's so easy and subtle to get to a place where we think we know it all, and we think we've got nothing else to learn. I'll never forget, uh, um, my my first pastorate was when I was 24. I I was the youth minister, and and, uh, when the pastor would be out, I'd preach for him, and then the pastor left to go to another ministry role, and they asked me to fill the pulpit while he was gone, and I ended up being the pastor, and it was just crazy how that happened. And um and I, I was twenty-four and, and I I'm green, green, green. I mean I'm, you think it's bad now. Think of I mean tw- twenty-four and uh I they did record some of the sermons, but you can't find them, so don't even look, all right. And um I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, in fact I remember the first uh, day I was in seminary and it was my first day in the office as the pastor, and so I uh, I walked in. They had this big, nice office, and the bookshelves were completely empty. I didn't have any books. I, you know, I was just a seminary student. Books were clean, and they had this big wooden desk and this big leather chair. And I walked in the office, and I sat down, and I said, I have no idea what to do next. <laughs> that's, that's a true story. True story. But that, listen to this. When I became the pastor 24 the average age of the congregation was seventy-two. Now that's average age. We had we had lots of folks in their nineties. Uh, it was amazing. I'm, I've never seen that many ninety-year-olds in my life. I mean, it was just amazing uh, the longevity of the folks in that church. You can can you imagine? You're, you're you're you know you're ninety-five. You've been a Christian probably for you know seven decades. In Sunday school every week, you've heard thousands of sermons, you know, and here comes 24-year-old squeaky voice, Wade as the preacher. And you can imagine, some people might have struggled that a little bit. In fact, when, uh, when the church interviewed me, uh, we had a Q& A session uh, before they voted on me. And, uh, and uh, I started off the conversation. I said, "Well, let's talk about my age. I know that's an issue." And I said, I just want to let you know that I'm 24 years old, and there's not a thing in the world I can do about it. <laughs> that's just that's when I was born in 1976, and that's just what it is, right? And it was an issue from then on. Um, but but I you know I, I can put myself in their shoes. I can imagine thinking, what in the world I'm going to learn from him? But see, it wasn't learning from me; it was learning from the Word of God, right? And, and and you and I can get to a place where you think, what in the world am I gonna learn from my Bible study teacher? What am I gonna learn from that preacher? What am I gonna learn from, you know, I I you know I've been a Christian all these years, I know everything, right? We don't. We all have more listen, the Bible is a fathomless, fathomless book. We can dig and dig and dig and dive and dive and dive into the truths of Scripture, and we're barely scratching the surface. In fact, I think in heaven, we're going to be learning the Word for eternity. We're going to just keep digging and digging into the, the treasures of the Word. And so David had a teachable mind. Are you humble? Are you, do, you, do you know that, hey, God has some things he wants to teach you? Whatever stage you are in life, God has some things he wants to teach you. Are you humble and teachable? David had a teachable mind. Number three, David had a reverent heart. A reverent heart. Look in uh, verse 12. This is the part I really love. Verse 12. David asked a question. Who is the man who fears the Lord? And he answers it by giving characteristics of those who fear God. So the answer to the question is these are the, the markers of someone that fears God. All right? So what are the markers? Number one, guidance. Verse 12, look what it says. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. In other words, a person that fears God can count on God's guidance in this life, which I think is the missing piece when it comes to discerning the will of God. There's a lot of books about the will of God out there, a lot of teachings and sermons, and and uh, it's, a, it's a favorite topic for people to study. But listen to me. Whatever your, whatever your understanding of discovering or discerning the will of God is, I know this for sure. God will not show you his will if you don't fear him. He won't. He wants you to take him seriously, and he'll show you what he needs to show you. But he's not going to let you, you know, uh, ignore him in your life, but then come to him and say, show me your will, God. He wants you to fear him. He'll give you guidance uh, in your life and guide you in the way that you need to go. And who doesn't want God to guide them? First, second of all, soul prosperity. Look in Verse 13. His soul, the person that fears God, his soul shall abide in well-being. You'll have a healthy soul, right? Doesn't mean you won't have other issues in your life—physical issues, uh, relationship issues, financial issues, health issues, whatever. But if you fear God, your soul will be healthy, and that's ultimately what matters. Let me tell you this: This is important to remember. I know you know this. This is important to remember. God is much more concerned about what's on the inside of you than your externals. And our culture is all about the externals, right? The right fitness, the right weight loss, the right uh, financial levels, the, the, you know, the right house, the right cars, the right, you know, the right appearance before others. Our society is all about external, external, external. God's much more concerned about your soul. He's much more concerned about you having a healthy soul. And if you fear God, respect, reverence for him, you'll have a healthy soul, a right perspective on life and living. Third, those who fear God will have a legacy. Look what it says in verse 13. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. That speaks of his offspring being blessed because uh, his life set them up for success and pointed them in the right direction and gave them inheritance those who fear the God, fear the lord will be a blessing to their kids in fact hold your place but turn over to proverbs chapter 20 verse 7 very important verse proverbs 20 verse 7 the righteous who walks in his integrity Blessed are his children after him. If you fear God, if you live a life of integrity by the help of the Holy Spirit, uh, in accordance with the word of God, you are are blessing your kids. You're helping your kids. You are uh, setting your kids up for future trajectory of spiritual life. And so those who fear God get guidance from God. They have a healthy soul. They leave a legacy. But fourth, and this is interesting, Those that fear God experience intimacy with God that those who do not fear God do not. Let me explain. Look what it says in verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for everyone. Is that what it says? The friendship of the Lord is for every church member. Is that what it says? The friendship of the Lord is for Baptists. Is that what it says? No. The friendship of the Lord is... Is for those who fear him. And he makes them uh, known, he makes known to them his covenant, the, the the deep realities of his covenant. And so this speaks of intimacy with God. The word friendship there is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word sod. Like it sounds like S-O-D, sod. And it literally means, or could literally be translated, couch or cushion. It it, it speaks of a place where two people who are close with one another would fit and converse. A couch, a cushion. That's what that word is. So he's speaking there of a relationship with God whereby you're close to God. You're, You're in a place of intimacy with God where you can talk with Him and spend time with Him and learn from Him. That's why this word... Could be translated because it speaks of a, a a certain type of intimacy between two people. It could be translated secret because it could be speak it could speak of intimate conversations, plans, and purposes. And so here's what it's saying: if you fear God, it's like you're it's like you're sitting close to Him on the couch. <laughs> That's what it means. It means that you have a place of of closeness and proximity to God. That those who do not fear the Lord don't experience. There is a special level of intimacy with God for those who fear Him. That ought to pique your interest, right? If I fear Him, I can experience some depth of relationship with God that other people cannot. Even says there, He makes known to them His covenant. God reveals some stuff to you, He, He teaches you and shows you some things that those who do not fear the Lord do not experience. And so those who fear God have intimacy with God, a close relationship with God. Do you remember the story of Moses? When Moses, I'm going going to finish up real quick, but remember the story of Moses when Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God and he was in the presence of God's manifest glory cloud, the kavod, the glory cloud, right? And... And when he walked out of the, the tent of meeting, do you remember what happened? His face was shining. I mean, like literally shining because he was in the presence of the, the, the revealed glory of God. Now think about how incredible that would have been. In fact, it scared everybody. When he walks out of the tent of meeting, and they're like, whoa, and it scared them. And so they even asked him to put a veil over his face. Uh, because this scared them so much. I mean, they knew something was supernatural going on and they couldn't figure it out. And So he put a veil over his face so you could not see his face shining as he walked away from the presence of God. But there's something about that proximity to God, the proximity to his glory, that made his face shine. Now, now, now stay with me for a minute. I submit to you that when people understand this principle of fearing God... And they spend some time on the couch with Him, close to Him, talking with Him, communing with Him, fellowshipping with Him. It, it's almost like there's a, not a physical, but there's a shining in their life. You, you can just, you, listen, you can, I don't want to be too mystical, but you can just tell when someone knows the Lord. When someone spends time with Him and someone is close and intimate with Him, it just shines from their life, doesn't it? I, I can. I think of certain people in my life, I can tell you their names. And you just, see, you, you, you just see the glory of God all over them. Not physically, but you know they've been with God. And it's because of this principle. They fear God, they spend time with God, they have a depth of intimacy with God that a lot of Christians never get to. And so David had a reverent heart. Hey, on this journey, I fear you, God. And I know you'll guide me, you'll make my soul prosper, you'll give me a legacy, and I'll have that intimacy with you. Number four and last, David had a trusting soul, a teachable mind, a reverent heart, and on this journey, focused eyes. Focused eyes. David had his eyes upon God, and you and I need to put our eyes upon God. David's basically saying, my eyes are upon the Lord, my focus is upon the Lord. Why? Number one, because I need his help. Look in verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I'm surrounded by enemies. There are traps uh, out there and snares, and I need God's help. So we should fix our eyes upon God, keep our focus upon him, because we need his help. Same thing in verse 17. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, bring me out of my distresses. Look in verse 19. Consider how many are my foes, with what violent hatred they hate me. And so he's basically saying, I I have trouble on this journey. Hey, look at me real quick. Anybody have trouble on your journey? Raise your hand if you have trouble on your journey. Every one of us, right? We need God's help. And David's saying, I'm going to keep my eyes upon you, God, because I need you to help me. Secondly, my eyes are upon God because I need his presence. Look in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Isn't that interesting? David's saying, I'm walking through a time in my life where I feel like everyone's abandoned me, and I really have no one to count on, and I'm lonely, and I'm frightened. So he says to God, would you turn to me and be gracious to me? In the midst of my loneliness, would you remind me of your presence? And let me just remind you, if you've lost everything, but you have the Lord in your life, you have everything you need. Amen? Amen? I need His presence. My eyes are upon God because I need His forgiveness. Look in verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Some of our troubles come from those around us, but probably most of our troubles come from within us. Our own failures, our own mistakes, our own shortcomings, uh, the, the times we stumble and fall, even as believers in Jesus We're on a journey where work's in process. And on this journey, we're going to blow it. And we need to fix our eyes upon God because he's the one that forgives us and restores us and puts us back on our feet when we fail. My eyes are upon God because I want to live with integrity. Look in verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. God, I'm going to keep my eyes upon you because I want to live a life that is a life of of righteousness, godliness, integrity. It reflects your holiness and purity to others. And then finally, my eyes are upon God because I care about God's purposes. Look in verse 22. The, the psalm inters, uh, ends in an interesting way. Redeem Israel, O God. So he's talking about himself, and now he's talking about the whole nation. The entire nation. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. In other words, David's saying, God, I know you have a purpose for your people. You're preserving your nation, you're preserving your king, because one day through your nation and through my lineage, the line of David, you're going to send a redeemer king, a Messiah. And he's talking about Jesus. So God, in in all that you're doing for me, I want to be a part of your purposes for a lost and dying world. You're up to something big, and I know that. So I'm going to keep my eyes upon you so I can stay in line with your purposes for this world and so david had focused eyes so psalm 25 is a wonderful psalm to read you might title it pilgrim's progress this is how you walk through the world this is how you journey to heaven a trusting soul a teachable mind a reverent heart and focused eyes